There's, um, there's nothing quite like social media to spark controversy, right? <laughs> I was interested to read during the last week a fairly high-profile uh, Christian author that I've read a bit of and uh, follow on social media a little bit, posted the following update. And I, I put it on a screen, so we put it on the next slide there. He, he just simply said this. It was a question. If Jesus spent three years pouring into Judas's life, what are the implications for Christians and cutting toxic people out of our lives? Good question. I think a fair question. Pretty simple question. But the fallout from that one question involved thousands of people questioning and ranting and what about this and well you don't understand my situation and all sorts of things thousands of people engaging with this one question not a lot of them were very charitable I might add and what resulted was really just a big steaming pot of half-baked opinions I think but maybe social media isn't the best place to have those sorts of conversations But the local church is. The local church is a great place to have those sorts of conversations. This is a place, this should be a place that we can wrestle with uncomfortable truths about who God is and what He's said to us in His Word as we seek to sort of try and make sense of. How God's word should shape our attitudes and our actions. And rather than coming to some sort of culturally informed conclusion and then imposing that onto the Bible. God has intended that his word should be the primary shaping force of our lives and the way that we view the world around us. Not only as individuals, but us certainly together as the church that meets here in Raymond Terrace, that the the word of God should shape the culture of his people who in turn reflect that countercultural life in the world that we live in. And so I've got a question, which is just, so what does a gospel-shaped church look like? Because that's what we ought to be. A church which is shaped and formed, moulded by the good news that we say we believe and that we proclaim. Well, you can turn to any number of places in the Bible, but I just want to try and draw your attention to at least what Paul says, I think, on this matter. And it starts in Romans chapter 15. And we're just going to read seven verses, one through seven. I've got them on the screen if you don't have your Bible, but it'd be great if you had your own Bible in front of you, reading along with me, making sure that I'm not just making stuff up. Romans 15, one through seven. I'm going to read from the English Standard Version. And it says this. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak And not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, 
But as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another, in accordance with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. That's God's word. Let's pray. Lord, you've spoken timeless truths. These weren't just true when Paul wrote them 2,000 plus years ago, but they are as true today. They will be true for all eternity. Lord, help our hearts and minds to be conformed to your truth. Lord, we pray that the Holy Spirit and the ministry of your word would shape us as a church to be more and more like Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen. What I want to do this morning is just simply try and break that passage down into a couple of sections and just show you how it works together and hopefully by the end of it, Um, God will have spoken to each of us individually, but certainly as a church, in what does it look like for us to be a gospel-shaped church? That's my primary question. That's, That's what I'd love for you to try and, I hope, answer in some way by the end of the time that we share together this morning. Look, the way that this text is sort of structured, it's fairly simple, and I'm going to point it out to you going, I'm sure that you'll be able to see it as you follow along. Um, What we have at the beginning of that passage, just in the first two verses, an action. It's expecting of something of us, some way that we should live. So we've got an action in verses 1 and 2, and then we have a reason for that action in verses 3 and 4. So that we know that Paul, as he's writing, he's not just sort of saying, hey guys, it'd be great if you could all live like this. And we all sort of say, well, that sounds pretty tough, Paul. Have you got a good reason why we should live like that? And he goes, no, I just thought it was a good idea. That's not what he does. He's going to root what he expects of us, some form of action, some sort of way of life, a cultural way of existing, and he's going to root it back into a good, solid reason. We're going to revisit that. And then verses 5 through 7, the remaining part of the passage that we're looking at this morning, it really just says, well, this is what the intended result would look like. So we've got an action, we've got a reason, and then we've got the intended result. So all I want to do this morning is just basically say, well, let's revisit each one of those parts, make a couple of observations about each one, and then hopefully some comments that might be helpful to help us sort of think through what is that going to look like. So let's, let's take the first one first. Action. Um, just so that it's focused on your attention on those couple of verses, let's read them again. We, who are strong, and you, maybe you're already just tuning out and you're just going, well, he's not talking to me. Um, let's hang in there. We're, we're going to revisit some of these words and what Paul, I think, is trying to say here. But we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. So this is why I'm saying this is an action. This is a way of life, right? It's not just um, do this particular behavior. This is a 
cultural. This is a way that we can live and you can apply this stuff into a whole range of different areas and spheres of your life. We who are strong, he says, have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. Now, if we were to apply those two verses consistently through our life, I can tell you there would be a radical countercultural community that was living in Raymond Terrace. Because this is not how the world lives. This is a statement which so cuts against the grain of most of how we are sort of wired and shaped and and molded to live by all the different influences like media, social media, Netflix, entertainment, movies, friendships, conversations, the sorts of Facebook advice that we give to one another. All those sorts of things shape us to do something different to what this is talking about. And now Paul is saying, because God is saying through him, that's not how I want my church to live my people to live. That's, that's not how I want them to live. So uh, that's a couple of observations just to sort of try and make sure that we're all on the same page with what really Paul's trying to drive at here. Uh, I think there's probably just two observations that I think are important to highlight, maybe a couple of comments about them. I want you to look at who carries the weight of obligation here. Obligation is a pretty strong word, and sometimes it's a word that we would tend to use in negative contexts. You know, it's like, oh, yeah, well, I didn't really want to, but I just felt obliged. You know, I didn't want to go to that event, but, um, well, I was sort of obliged to. I had to. Now, yes, it does carry that type of um, negative tone to it, but it, it can be used so much more broadly than that. It also carries the sense of um, honour, or the sense of duty that compels someone to maybe serve their country on the battlefield. I had the opportunity last night with a bunch of guys to go and watch the movie 1917. I would say it's a good movie, but it comes with a strong warning. You would need to do your reviews before going and watching it. Um, But it, it captured for me quite a vivid picture of the First World War and young men who were thrust into battle... And some of them, yeah, sure, might have been forced to go, but there was also a great sense where some of these men, not to run off for the glory of war, but a sense of duty to serve their country, a sense of obligation to say, who's going to stand in the gap? And there were men, and there were women, who put their hand up and said, I will stand in the gap. That's the sort of way that we can use the word obligation. I think it's the way that Paul uses the word obligation here. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the weak. But look who carries the weight of obligation. It's the strong in faith, Paul says. The strong in faith carry the weight of obligation here. And and just so that we understand that sense of strong in faith, those who are strong... Because I can guarantee that if I said, who here, as a Christian this morning, feels strong? Raise your hand. Not many. Because most of the time we feel weak, right? Most of the time we feel deficient. Most of the time we feel like we don't measure up. Most of the time we feel like there are so many others who have got their Christian life together, but not us. Everybody else seems to be doing so well. The irony is that we're all thinking that as we look at each other. 
How does Paul use the word strong here? Well, Paul almost exclusively, when he writes in the New Testament, uses the term strong, particularly in the reference to our faith, the strong of faith, not as a description of what we might call super spiritual. You know, those sort of real people that when I was a kid, we said, oh, yeah, he's a real spiro. Did you ever say that? Or was that just a Queensland thing? You know those annoying people that always used to quote verses all the time and tell you why you were doing something that it's like, oh, well, you know, remember it says in Hezekiah chapter 2 that, and you're like, oh, for goodness sake, stop being such a super... That's not... That sort of person that you just conjured up in your mind then, that's not what Paul means when he says the strong in faith. It's not what we would often describe as those sort of super spiritual people. But the way Paul uses the word, the strong of faith through the New Testament, is almost always about people who embrace the liberty and the responsibility of grace. So when we talk about the grace of God, um, God's riches, this is a little acronym that I like to use to try and remember, God's riches at Christ's expense for sinners like me. I'm undeserving of any of God's favor. And yet God has loved me through Christ and included me and rescued me and restored me. And God's grace towards a sinner like me, Paul uses the term strong in faith or strong to describe people who understand that that grace brings an incredible liberty of the way that you live your life. That I am free that I'm a new creation, all things are passed away, behold, all things are new. And Paul says, when you've grasped that, the liberty that comes with grace, that's strong. But not just liberty. Because we could sort of live our lives, couldn't we, um, in a way where we say, you know what, grace reigns, praise Jesus and hallelujah, so I'm going to live any way I like. And God's grace is sufficient for me. Right? We could do that, couldn't we? We'd be fools because the Bible condemns it. But we know that it's a problem. It has been since the first century because Paul spends a considerable amount of times in the book of Romans, earlier in this, chapter, in this book, dealing with people who say, yes, God's grace is good. Let's, let's test it. <laughs> let's see how far it goes. Let's go out and live whatever life we want. Let's behave whatever way we want. Let's treat people any way we like. And at the end of it, we can just say, well, God's grace is good. It covers me. Paul says that those who are strong understand the liberty that comes with grace, but they also understand the responsibility. To not live that sense of what the Bible says, an old word, licentious life. That sense of saying, I'm going to please myself, but but excuse it under God's grace. No. Paul says the strong in faith understand the liberty that we've been brought into, the freedom that we've been brought into under God's grace, but we also understand that that carries a great responsibility. They're the strong. So in 1 Corinthians, for example, chapter 10, he would probably, I think one of the best ways that Paul summarizes this idea 
can be found in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 23. When he says about himself, all things are lawful. All things are lawful. But not all things are helpful. Right? All things are lawful, he says. But not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Wow, that sounds familiar, doesn't it? That's Romans 15 language. Over in Paul's letter to the Corinthians, it's like Paul maybe had a consistency in his theology. That's amazing. (laughs) He understood, look, all things are lawful. That's what God's grace does. I'm in Christ. I'm a new person. All things are lawful. But not everything's helpful. Not everything builds up people. So I can stand here in my freedom and say, hey, I'm under Christ's freedom. Don't judge me. Paul's saying real strength understands that your freedom in Christ is shaped by what's helpful for other people. What, What will build other people up? Not just the sense of me exercising my freedom in Christ. I'll live what I, I, how I want to live. I'll drink whatever I want to drink. I'll do whatever I want to do. I'll watch whatever movie I want to watch. Thank you very much. I'm under the grace of God. Don't judge me. And Paul says, no, that's weak. You understand liberty, but you don't understand the responsibility that comes with it. Let's go back to Romans 15 and verse 1. Those who are strong, he says, have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak. That's, that's the context. We, we are to bear with the failings of the weak, Paul says. Did you, did you see that word failings of the weak? The failings of the weak? Sometimes we're tempted, I think, out of a culture of inclusion to say that we can put up with differences. We can sort of stretch ourselves to say that much. Listen, we're all different. We can put up with differences in each other. And that's good. But Paul doesn't stop at just differences of each other. He actually says failings. This is not just, oh, we approach this differently. Paul says this is bearing with the failings of other people. People who actually engage with you or engage with our world and our context. Other Christians, this context is all Christians here, the people in the church, people who claim Christ and say we're walking with him. This is not just about understanding and bearing with each other's differences. This is Paul saying, no, the gospel shapes us in such a way that we actually bear with one another's failings. People who have dropped the ball considerably and maybe even consistently I was thinking about this and I thought you know what's funny it's the weak who love this verse the most isn't it true that we want everybody else to act this way towards us but rarely do we want to act that way towards others when, when I'm the one who drops the ball, I really want you guys to bear with me. When I'm the one who fails, I'm really hoping that you guys understand this verse well. Because <laughs> I do fail. If you haven't seen it, my wife will fill you in. 
or my children or Tim or some of the other guys that I spend a considerable amount of time with in ministry. They understand my failings. And so when I fail, I'm saying, oh, I really want my brothers and sisters to understand this first because I want them to bear with me. But how, quick, how quickly my mind shifts when I see the failings of others. I think they should have had this all together, right? This is the third time that we've had to address this or bring this up. So we really love this verse when it applies to us, but we don't always love this verse when, when we're the one who has to share our obligation to bear with others. Look, just in case you thought that this was really just about a relationship between strong people and weak people in the way that Paul uses those words anyway, Paul now expands the boundaries to include anyone. So that was all just verse 1, but in verse 2, right, it doesn't go on just about weak and strong. Verse 2 says, let each of us, okay, all-inclusive language there, each of us, no one's outside of that, let each of us please his neighbour... There's nothing there about weak or strong. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good. To build who up? Him up. Her up. So now Paul's gone from just thinking about those who maybe are stronger in their understanding of what grace is and those who are weaker in their understanding of what grace is and the relationship between those two groups of people and then he just widens the boundary and he says, actually, let's just talk about all of us for a moment. Let each of us deal with his neighbor. That's anybody, right? Do you think of another time in the New Testament when someone said, well, who's my neighbor? Jesus was talking about love your neighbor as yourself. And those that were wanting to justify themselves said, well, Jesus, who's my neighbor? And he tells a very famous story, right? The Samaritan on the road. Okay, the guy that gets beaten up and then there's, there's priests and there's religious people, all the people that you would have expected to have done something, don't do anything. They pass on the other side of the road. The, the Samaritan. The outcast, well, they come along, right? And they pick up the guy beaten, they put him on his donkey, they take him out of their own pocket, pay for the expenses of their recuperation. Jesus making a point here, who's a neighbor? And then he switches it all and he says, be a good neighbor. Not just sort of say, are you a good neighbor? Jesus wants us to realize, "Am am I actually a good neighbor? How should I treat my neighbor? So maybe you're thinking, okay, no problem, Chris. I will add that to my list of things to do to be a good Christian in 2020. I'm going to um, try to be more bearing with people's failings around me. And I'm going to try to really build up people around me for their good. And I think they're good goals, right? If you were here a couple of weeks ago, I preached from this same chapter, but the end of this chapter, and I said, if that's your goal, you'll fail. I have. Where does the motivation come from in a gospel-shaped church? Where does this type of countercultural way of living 
rest in? Does it come from my motivation? Does it come from my sense, even my sense of obligation? Paul, doesn't he, doesn't he say, we're obligated to do this? Does it come from that obligation? Well, that's not where he roots it. It's not where he builds the foundations down into. How do we bear with the failings of the weak? How do we lift up the needs of others over our own? It doesn't spring from our ability to sort of fulfill some type of religious mandate. It springs from the gospel. It springs from the good news of how God has loved us in Christ. So look at where Paul roots our reason for living this way. Okay, so we've talked about the action. Now we're going to talk about the reason. Let's reread verses 3 and 4. Here's why Paul says you should live this way. For Christ did not please himself. But as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. Paul rests this sort of behavioral pattern of the church of selfless love and laying down my liberties for the sake of somebody else, bearing with their failings even, building up my neighbor. Paul roots all of that, not in some type of holier than thou attitude that we can, we can have, all that sort of square Christianity that we used to ridicule when I was a kid. But instead, he, he roots it in the sacrificial, substitutionary work of Jesus Christ. Amen. Look at what the gospel does. It's here. It not only saves us, some of our team mission guys, I won't put them on the spot, unless you do it, Romans 1.16. Anyone know it? Awesome. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Thanks, Beck. Man, we need to have a quiz off, guys, every couple of weeks, all right? For I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Why? Because it is the power of God unto salvation. That's the way the King James says it. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ because it is the, it is the power of God. It's how God saves sinners. But not only does it save us, the gospel transforms us and the gospel keeps us. The gospel grows us. 1 Corinthians 15 and 1 says that we are not only saved by the gospel, but in the gospel we stand. This is where we take our stand. They're not just truths that we believed one day when we realized that we were a sinner and needed a savior and we called out and said, Christ, I put my trust in you. I believe, help my unbelief maybe, but I'm going to put all my hope in you at the cross of Christ and I bow my knee and I say, Jesus, I need you. That was a certain point in time in your history if you're a Christian. But the gospel was not only good for that, the gospel is good and needed and necessary for today. Because in the gospel, we take our stand, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. 
Or Romans 16, 25 says, Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ. This is the gospel that strengthens us. That builds us and that helps us. And that's what Paul is wanting us to realize. That if we're going to live a selfless life, pouring into those who even fail us maybe, bearing with the failings of the weak, building up neighbors for their good and not our own, Paul says it better be rooted in the gospel. It better be rooted in the fact that the the story of good news, that God came and rescued sinners like that was enough for your salvation, but it's enough for you to stand in. It's enough for you to strengthen in from this day until the day that we meet Jesus face to face. So Jesus absorbs the reproach the, the insult, the wrath, everything that was deserving to us. Paul says, listen, the way that we can do this for other people is by looking at Jesus and seeing what he did for us. Right? So you and I, all of us, without exception, would stand completely guilty and worthy of condemnation if we were to meet God face to face. And if our Rescue and our salvation was dependent on my ability to keep God's perfect law. The Bible very clearly says we have all fallen short. Big time. We all like sheep have gone astray. Always count on Tim for that. All right. All of us. No exception. So where do we find any sense of hope? Is it in Christ? Isn't it a God who says, listen, I, I know that you are deserving of death. The wages of sin is death. But the gift, the gift of God is eternal life in where? Jesus Christ, our Lord. So I stand condemned before God on my own merit, my own flesh, my own heart, my own behavior. And I have a Jesus who comes in and says, no, no, hang on. He's with me. When I hung on a cross, I thought of him. His sin became my sin. My righteousness became his righteousness. He's good. Let him in. God poured out his wrath on sin and Jesus stepped into the path and he bore it for all of us. Every single scrap of it and it's why Jesus was able to say, it is finished. Paul says we're obligated to do the same for others. And of course, we can't save anyone, right? I can't save anybody. Only God can do that. But we can embrace a gospel-shaped culture that screams to the world that the good news transforms not only what we believe, but also what we live. Where do we find hope and strength to endure in this task? It's in the scriptures, it's here. Paul says it. Verse 4, for whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction. That through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Is it possible to live this type of gospel-shaped life? Yes. 
How do I know? The Bible tells me. The Spirit of God is in me. We have been given a mandate which is supernatural. And a God who is able to accomplish great things. A God who is able to look at a valley full of dry bones and say, live. And this is a valley of dry bones. And God has said, live. And bones start connecting and sinew starts connecting and muscle starts knitting and flesh develops and skin develops and those who were once dead are now alive. And it's a miracle, right? If you don't think that you've got a story worth telling, that your testimony is some sort of boring event, man, we need to do some work about that, right? Because it is a miracle that you and I can be alive in Christ. And so Paul says, listen, if you want hope for this, look to the scriptures. That's what it's there to do. And it does. So what's the intended result? What's the intended result? Let's read together the last part of this little passage. Verse 5 down to the end of verse 7. So he says, may the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another... In accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. What type of community is formed by such a rich gospel? What would a church look like? If they seriously embraced a culture shaped by the gospel. What's the intended result? It's here. Live in such harmony with one another. It's very easy to live in harmony with yourself. You ever notice that? If you're the only person, it's very easy to keep everyone happy. It gets a little bit more difficult when there's two. That's why marriages are sometimes hard. Add some children into the mix and you have one, two, five, seven. (laughs) It gets increasingly more difficult because there are more people. Then put 150, 180, 200 people meeting together regularly. There is bound to be conflict. There's bound to be strong opinions shared. There's bound to be feelings hurt. There's bound to be the time when someone didn't eat your morning tea and they ate the other person's morning tea. Or the time when somebody came along, that guest preacher that preached once, and everyone said, man, he's the best preacher I've ever heard. What does it look like when we embrace the gospel, when we live with each other's failings, when we see each other's neighbors whose needs are there not to serve me, but to build up for their good? What's the intended result of that after it's been all rooted into the good news of Jesus Christ who has done the same for us? How the gospel shapes us, one way it does, is that we live in such harmony with one another. 
It's also there, it says, in accord with Christ Jesus. What that means is, in accord with something means in line with something. Or representing something. So when we live in such harmony with one another, when we do it in accord with Jesus Christ, it makes people just go, you know what? They're a bunch of strange people that it looks like God is in their midst. It's a story of the disciples in the first century who meet before uh, the Sanhedrin. And the Sanhedrin there, the, the religious ruling party, is sort of saying to them, hey, listen, guys, we really love your zeal. We really love your fervor. But can we just tone it down on the whole Jesus thing? I mean, they didn't even say it that sensitively. Basically, they said, stop saying his name or we'll beat you. All right? And, and they were able to say, listen, um, good talk. I understand your perspective. I'm happy to take into consideration. But there is no way on earth that we are going to stop talking about Jesus. You know what was really obvious to the Sanhedrin? When they sort of had their post-meeting debrief, it said, these men have been with Jesus. Yeah. How good is that? They were fishermen and tax collectors and... They were the cultural misfits. They were the fringe of society. They didn't really fit in in Jerusalem. That's where everyone's cultured and sips lattes. <laughs> but they'd been with Jesus. Yeah. And it was obvious. That's what it looks like when we live in such harmony with one another, in accord with Christ Jesus. People look at it and just go, there is no reason why all of those people should get along so well unless Jesus is in the middle of it, yeah. right? Yeah. And then he says, together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And you might be able to think, well, this is a song about glorifying God. And it is, but I want you to notice that the, the emphasis is on the together and the one voice. Together with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is not just about singing in harmony. This is not just about us you know, doing a great job like these guys just sang that song for us. And I just I love that. And as beautiful as that is and the way that their voices blend together and enrich my heart and my soul, pointed me to Jesus. This is not what that's talking about. This is talking about the togetherness and the one voice of a group of people who stand and simply proclaim Jesus is enough. Jesus is enough. And that's the consistency of their message coming out. The consistency of the message that rings out in this community is Jesus is enough. It's not about my interests. It's not about what I'm trying to do. It's not about my story. It's not about my agenda even. This is about Jesus and what he's done. And in one voice, we raise it together and we glorify God. And the final, the final implication... And we might think, man, Paul is just building up to a crescendo here. And then the last thing he says is, make sure you've got a good welcome team. <laughs> well, that's maybe one way that you could look at it, but not really. Look at the power in the simplicity of that one statement. Therefore, welcome one another. Welcome one another. Now, we could have, and we do have, a great group of people who, who, who give up their time to get to church a little bit early and stand in the foyer 
and they shake people's hands and they greet them warmly. And I'm glad that they do that. But this is an address and a question to us, all of us. This is not saying, hey, listen, you need to join the greeting roster. This is saying, be people who warmly embrace and welcome strangers. That even after they've been greeted at the door, we don't just sit here and think, well, someone said hello to them. It's not my job, right? Or I'm not sure if I really... Have they been here for a couple of weeks? I feel bad if I go and say hello to them because maybe they've been here. I've done that before. Man, hey, so good to see you. You're new here. I've been coming for two years. (laughs) Where do you go? Ah. Awkward. (laughs) Crickets. And sometimes that fear puts us off Paul says, listen, when, you, when you've embraced the way that the gospel shapes your story and what Christ has done in you and we're living this lifestyle of, of bearing with other people, with, with doing something for the good of somebody else and not my own agenda, then Paul says one of, the, one of the really big implications of that is that we just become really good at welcoming people. And not just running through our door, this is a building. If someone comes through the door that you don't know, I hope that you would say, hey, listen, what can I do to make this person feel welcome? Can I move in my seat so they've got somewhere to sit? Can I adjust what I normally do so that they feel like they've been embraced by a family? Can I make sure that even though my house is not really sort of, you know, um, well, I didn't really pick things up this morning. I didn't tell the kids that we were having visitors, so we didn't clean up and but maybe there's something that I can do to make this person share in a meal with me or be hospital. There's all those sorts of things that we can do, but, but this is really about a culture of just saying, how do we embrace people? How do we make people experience the church, not just the service, but the people of God in this place in such a way that when they leave or if they move on or if they go somewhere else, they just go, yeah, we love the music there and oh, the lighting was lovely and the teaching was reasonable and... But what I really miss is I miss being a part of a family. Look, there are all sorts of churches. Some are good. Some aren't, to be honest. Some are just simply different. They're just different, not neither good nor bad necessarily. But at the end of the day, we're not called to be accountable for those churches. We're called to be accountable for this one. If if Raymond Terrace is your home, if Raymond Terrace Community Church is the people that you call my church, this is my family in God, then we're accountable for that, all of us. So let's dive into the scriptures together. Remember what's what Paul said? That's why they're there. To instruct us and encourage us, to give us hope that this is possible. That they're written for that reason. So let's dive into the scriptures together this year. Let's rediscover the joy and the wonder of the good news of grace together this year. Let's do the hard work of conforming ourselves to the gospel. And then we can celebrate as we begin to see that gospel-shaped culture emerging and bubbling up to the surface.
Let's truly welcome one another. Not just greet one another. I think in general, if I'm honest, as a church I've heard, every church has a reputation, right? People say, oh, I've heard about your church. It's whatever. I think that we're really good at greeting people. I personally do. I, th- I think that we can do better with welcoming people. And there's a difference, right? When someone walks in the door, someone comes into your house, you can greet them well. Welcome to my house. Welcome to my home. Make yourself at home, we say. And if they sit in the lounge room and we ignore them, or don't offer them something to eat or drink or share it, we haven't really welcomed them. Let's truly welcome one another as Christ has welcomed us. And then with one voice, whether we sing about it, preach about it, talk about it, or simply model it, you know what we'll be doing? With one voice, together, we will be saying, this is good news. This is about the glory of God, not us. So there's an action there. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak, not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, to build him up. Why? Well, because we see it at operation in the gospel. This is how God has worked with us and how he's treated us and how he's brought us in. And so let's root our actions in the gospel and then the intended result will be, well, the overflow, the welcome, the embrace. We need help. Amen. Let's ask for it. Yeah. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the way that it instructs us, written many, many years ago, and yet it speaks so purposefully and with great relevance into our existence and our lives right now. Lord, we want to be a church, a community of your people who are shaped by the gospel, that as you have treated us, Lord, we are wanting now to treat others in the same way. Lord, make each one of us echo John the Baptist's words when he was able to say, I must decrease and you must increase. Lord, that's what we want. So that with one voice, together, we might glorify you. Help us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.